that brings us on to our second topic of discussion, which is titled Are Housing Associations Developers or Providers of Social Housing? And it's going to be quite interesting because you're probably going to have one side of the fence going, well, you know, they are there to provide services for, you know, tenants, et cetera, et cetera. But then you do have the aspect of, well, how are these very homes getting built in the first place? If they're going to get built, surely they're developing, or then do you have companies like Clarion, et cetera, who are a hybrid? Uh, so, yeah, very interesting um, very interesting topic. Uh, my, my first note I've got here that I found was quite interesting was uh, social housing. Uh, it's certainly in England, maybe uh, in other places, but in England it dates back to medieval times with like almshouses, uh, bits and bobs like that, where you would get the ch- um, sometimes a church helping the poor in terms of housing, basic shelter and, and food and bits and bobs. Now, I didn't actually know that until I researched <laughs> it for this episode. So hey-ho. But uh, yeah, I guess going back to that question, are housing associations developers or providers of social housing? I mean, where would you instinctively, where would you stand on that, Neil, and, and why? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I think I'm going to completely cop out and say that they tend to be both. <laughs> um, but I'll, uh, I'll kind of explain what I mean. So I think to understand the nature of social housing within England, you've got to appreciate the, the sheer variety of organisations. As you mentioned, we, we have had some form of social housing in this country since, you know, the, the 13th century um, in, in almshouses. Um, more modern days is really kind of late era Victorian philanthropic and then kind of mid-60s and, and an LSVT era, uh, large-scale voluntary transfer organisations. is kind of the key drivers of the expansion of uh, housing associations. But yeah, social housing has existed in this country in one form or another for a very long period of time. And naturally, you've got a very broad um, kind of nature of operators within that. Um, there are currently somewhere, and it does depend who you speak to and where you go to, somewhere between 1,300 to 1,400 registered providers um, of housing within England. Um, that does mask the fact that multiple organisations have subsidiaries, which tend to be registered as well. So the true numbers probably a bit lower than that in terms of actual organisations. Um, for example, the one that I work for, uh, quite common, we had a social housing organisation, but we then also have a for-profit developer arm who build houses at market sale and shared ownership and then reinvest the profit back into the main organisation as a means of subsidising build for further units. Um, you have organisations who remain very true to original origins. A really good example of this are um, probably these days more known as BAME, um, so black and minority ethnic organisations, but were historically called BME providers. So with a particular focus on providing for black and minority tenants, um, usually very small scale. You, you're looking, you'd be lucky if you get more than 250 units uh, within these organisations, and typically they're in the 10s and 20s. Um, Nehemiah being a good example, who are based in uh, Birmingham. Uh, you then have specialist care and support providers as well. Um, Habintech uh, are well known for providing adapted housing for people with uh, physical uh, impairments or disabilities, um, depending on the 
correct term is, um, all of their stock is wheelchair accessible, although most properties should be that, they're not. Um, and they really focus on providing a particular element of, of housing. Um, that will impact on how you approach things. The more generic, bigger operators, I would term developers. Um, but on the smaller scale, probably provider is a better word. And what we mean by developers and providers here is a developer will have an active development program. So they will go out and look to buy land or to work with partners to acquire land and then build on either directly themselves or commission others to do it. Uh, providers will look to acquire units. Um, the, the first housing association I worked for was uh, no longer in existence. Now it's merged with uh, a couple of others, but it's called Family Housing Association Birmingham. And the way that they got stock was the uh, Catholic Church in Birmingham would go around and buy up these uh, Victorian townhouses um, and then convert them to varying degrees of the effective and efficiency um, uh, into flats, which they would then let out uh, for, for submarket rent. Again, predominantly to cater for the Irish immigration that had come into the uh, city at the time, um, but have moved on to being more generalist uh, as providers, so uh, no longer a specialist. Um, most of their stuff was acquired through what's known as Section 106, which is the on a quid pro quo between the local planning authority and developers when they build stock, um, a certain percentage of the units developed could be set aside for social rent for submarket uh, purchase, such as shared ownership, um, uh, or could just be a cash payment into the local authority. You know, there's really broad remit in terms of how that payment could be made. But for a lot of housing associations, that's how they acquire stock indeed. Or I think it's the 2019-2020 financial year, 50% of all affordable housing was delivered via Section 106. So highly dependent on the private sector, actually, to deliver the necessary affordable housing in, in, in England. Um, I use the, the, the bigger term affordable housing there um, because it co that would cover your shared ownership, your start homes, although none of those actually got built. Um, but you kind of your assisted home ownership stock as well as flowing through to your social rent. Um, one of the really interesting things is how funding has changed in the period and how that's impacted decisions on how organisations look like, which is great because it gives us a golden thread to our, the final episode that we do in terms of whether housing associations are too big or not. Um, but if you look in 1986, because this is where the, the first year I could find figures for it. Mm -hmm. Private finance for housing associations gross investment expenditure constituted precisely 0% of their total external funding. So they relied entirely on local government grants, uh, what was the GLA back then, or from what is now known as Homes England, but back then would have been Housing Corporation, for external cash to deliver uh, new housing. Move forward to 2020, 2021, that's 78%. So we've given you the massive change in terms of how funding structures of organisations operate. Particularly under New Labour, you had a drive to rationalise the number of organisations they were dealing with to achieve efficiencies of scale. So instead of having to deal with 500 organisations to deliver 20,000 units, New Labour or this isn't particularly an effective and efficient model to do this. We want to deal with 20. Um, so 
you saw some of the, the bigger organizations starting to get more of the, the cash come through purely by size. Um, you also started to see a number of organizations kind of take a more rational view of where they were operating and whether or not they could work better together. Um, because you could, and having worked in Birmingham, in literally have four housing associations operating on the same street, which could be a good thing, could be a bad thing. Um, you'd certainly know which ones they were because they'd have their all different kind of designs and little placards they like to put on their, their, their properties. But it, there were genuine questions of, is this the best way to do things? Um, having said that, part of the reasons why you sort of move away from local authority dominance of social housing provision, leaving aside ideological and political reasons, was actually one of openness and transparency. Birmingham is still the single biggest stock-owning local authority in Europe, and it's lost a significant number of its stock to housing associations as part of LSVTs, estate regenerations, um, etc. There were criticisms of not being able to hold people to account, of having poor service, of having people operating for the benefit of their own, um, which is one of the kind of multitude of reasons why you saw the shift away from social housing being provided by large municipal entities. Um, so do we want to go back to that, but with a different guys provided by housing associations? Yeah, no question. So um, there are multiple reasons why you could be a provider or developer, and the ever-changing drive from a high-level government point of view has actually been towards pushing to the developer because of finance because of ease of delivering what is effectively a national strategic outcome, which is good quality sub-market housing to alleviate um, homelessness in this country. Um, has it necessarily delivered the results required? I don't know. Um, to pull up other random figures, all of these are available actually in the UK Housing Review, which I strongly recommend anyone with even a passing interest housing to go read. It's a free resource. Um, part provided by the CIH and others, but it's just got an absolute wealth of stats over the years. Um, the Department for Leveling Up also has a whole host of tables you can look at, but these two tables in particular from the UK Housing Review, which really caught my eye. If you look at housing association housing completions as a proportion of all completions for the financial year, in 1980-81, they constituted 9% of all completions. Roll that forward to 2020-21, we now constitute 17% of all completions. So in the face of it, big change. Um, that has largely occurred because we no longer build council housing en masse. So if you look at the actual figures, back in 1980-81, you had just over 19,000 completions for housing associations. Roll that forward to 2020-21, you have 26,000. So you've only increased output by 7,000, but you've increased your share by double, effectively. Just shy of double. Um, so, mm. yeah, it's, it, it shows the complex nature of the sector because if everyone was developing, that number would be a lot higher. Then being well, playing devil's advocate on that, mm. and I, I, again, I'll use my experience of a few times that the business partner myself have gone through planning and mm. other people I know have gone through planning. And whether this stigma is deserving or not, I, I don't know. But people, some people I speak to, have an absolute nightmare with planning. And 
Now, again, that's probably a whole another episode and series in itself. <laughs> so, you know, apologies to direct us down that rabbit hole in this particular episode. But, you know, if you've got a brownfield site or whatever, yeah. and, you know, you want to go and put 10 houses on it, for example. Now, if I was doing that, or in, in your case, you know, a housing association or the development aspect of that was yeah. doing that, I mean, you could be met with all sorts of, you know, you know, do a bit of 106 here or, no, you know, we're not happy with the number of dwellings or we're not happy with this, not happy with that. Oh, you've got to do this, you've got to do that. And I, I guess ultimately when you're developing, there has got to be some profit there. Or there's no point doing it in the first place. And it seems to me that it's almost like, and not, I'm not tired every single council in England with this, but it seems like most councils and councillors are dinosaurs when it comes to planning. So whilst I appreciate the numbers that you've just given us, for mm. your experience, yeah. at, at what point have we got to look at the planning system as well to say, hang on a minute, you know, I think last time I checked in, it was about, and this is UK-based, I think mm. about 3% of UK land is golf course and about 1.5% to 2% is, is housing. So there's more golf yeah. course space. Um, so. Rather than me rabbiting on, I guess the point I'm trying to, or the question I'm trying to ask you is, at what point have we got to look at the planning aspect as well in order to help facilitate the development of, of all types of housing in England? It, it, it's absolutely crucial. Now, it, we've got to be clear there's no one silver bullet to resolving the various issues with housing in the UK, but in England in particular. But failure to reform housing has been one of the major policy disasters for this country uh, probably the last four decades. What you are seeing is we have seen a systematic liberalisation on the monetary and demand side of housing. What we haven't seen is the equivalent release on supply. Mm. Um, I mentioned that statistic earlier that 50% of all affordable housing units in 2019-20 came from Section 106. If you want more social housing, you need more private housing. No. If you want to have a more affordable housing system, housing market, you need to build more housing. It's not the only aspect, but it is pretty key to increase uh, supply in order to meet demand. Um, so 100% on there with you, with the banners and placards saying reform uh, planning, because it is a massive constraint on our housing system, you have hyper, hyperly, well, hyper-local politics having a disproportionate impact on national strategic objectives. Um, and I get it, you know, it's not fun to live by a building estate. My, my wife and I were one of the first to move in in this estate because we were in a new build. And, you know, guys, girls and goats are out there smashing things, knocking things about building it. You can't build housing quietly. Maybe there was a nice field that you enjoyed walking past on occasion, but we've got 93, 94,000 households in temporary accommodation in this country. We've got nearly a quarter of a million people living in B&Bs and unfit accommodation because there's nowhere to put them in social housing. You have an affordability ratio for home ownership that is just crazy. You are seeing the volumes of people of my age able to buy dropping significantly um the planning system plays a big role yes there's stuff around tax on land yes there's stuff around second ownership 
yes, we could potentially look at how we regulate the private rented sector a bit, but actually you, you sort planning and you enable more development over the long term, you will see a better outcome for housing. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more because if you, I think the thing to take away from this is, as you quite rightly said, you've got two aspects. You've got your demand, you've got your supply. And, you know, dare I say, with everything that's gone on, and I'm just going to go off topic for two minutes, with everything that's gone on in the last couple of years, mm. where, you know, Bank of England, government have just been throwing cash at people and, and whatever, they actually haven't done anything to affect the supply side. And you wonder why mm. prices are going up. And it's going to be the same with housing, not just in the last couple of years, but over, over decades, as you quite rightly said. Mm. It's because that demands that demands there, and that demand's always going to be there. Yep. Yet that supply side is anyway. I guess this episode's about us housing associations, developers, or providers, yeah. not macroeconomics behind <laughs> it. I think we're we're singing from the same hymn sheet there. Mm. Um, one point I did have, but I think you've answered this already, was yeah. It you know if there's no profit to be made, then surely um, I thought I made that comment a little while ago. Ignore what I've just said, because I'm just talking on my backside now, Neil. Um, what else has changed over time then? Now, obviously, we just touched upon planning and, and the mm. supply side. Yeah. Um, but have have housing associations sort of always been developers and providers from day dot? And we're, we're both going to sit on the fence here, I think, and, and say they're both anyway. Or, or yeah. has there been something that's swung it from one side to another or is it are they always just been both uh, yeah it's an interesting one i think certainly you have different approaches and cultures and different organizations as you would in any sector um there were definitely out of the the, the organizations that appeared in the 60s there were definitely the, some that were in it because they wanted to do community good they saw some of the, the local market conditions and wanted to do something about that and there were others who were definitely there just to make money um uh, both of those things are absolutely fine in my point of view um they went about things different ways um in terms of development that kind of came later um in certainly in terms of in, in earnest partly because of the way that uh funding could be acquired um but also because you started to see economies of scale appear where organizations started merging now it's something i'll, I'll We'll, we'll touch across in the next episode as well, but something like 247 out of that, somewhere between 1,300 to 1,400 organisations, own 95% of the stock. Something like 82% of registered providers are under 1,000 units. Okay, so That gives you an indication as to we have some really big boys and girls at one end, and then we have a lot of much smaller ones on the other Um and the smaller you are, the less likely you are to have a development program and the less likely you are to be looking to be a developer. Um, not so that you can't be, but you know, in, in terms of overall output, you're not going to be building 100 units per year if you've got 50. Um, not unless you've got an incredibly wealthy benefactor just kind of pulling money out of every office. You know, it's just not how the world works. Um, so I think there are a lot of different elements to it. But fundamentally, it comes down to values and finance in terms of what drives an organisation to be able to be a developer or want to be a developer. Um, my organisation, my organisation, the organisation I work for, we, we try and tread the line. We try and be both. We are proud of the units that we developed. I mean, we developed 1,013 
last financial year. Um, we have 46 to 48,000 units um, in total. So we are one of the medium to big organisations and we want to keep developing and we want to develop land-led. We don't want to be necessarily having to work with partners who've acquired the land and then build in situ. We want to own from the ground up the, the, the stuff that we're building on that. That's our stated intention, more or less. So it can give you an indication of where we are. There are other organisations who expressly opted out of capital funding programmes because they didn't like the strings attached. Um, when the first round, so the 2011 to 2015 affordable housing funding programme came into effect, the one that saw a 60% drop in the cash available, the big caveat was you will now build affordable rent. Now, for those who don't know, affordable rent is charged at 80% of the market rent, which is substantially higher. Well, it can be charged up to, which is substantially higher than social rent, which, depending on where you're operating in the country, can be as low as 30%. You know, if you're operating uh, Kensington or Chelsea, um, or it could be near 50, 60%. Uh, um, and in some instances in different parts of the country, the social rent and the private rent are very similar because the market's that crap. That um, you know, there's not much difference between the two. So you've got a whole set of factors kind of nudging people around, and organisations have taken choices based on their values or their strategic objectives as to what they want to do, even if it means ultimately they're not going to be a developer and they would just be a provider, occasionally acquiring stuff where the cash reserves allow. Makes perfect sense. And just on that, it actually. When I was uh, declared that I was talking about my backside earlier, and I actually kind of uh, figured out what I, I was going to say. So, in, in effect, if you are if you're developing uh, whatnot, then guess I've got this correct. So you're gonna when you've got a hybrid, for example, you'll have obviously mm-hmm. profitable development um, that will then put you know, or sometimes or majority of the time, put back into the you know the running costs of such and yeah. you know, the providing aspect. And I was going to say, surely if people are, are making no profit at the end of the day, I mean, obviously, you know, making a profit is a good thing. That's sort of how the mm. world works. Um, but, you know, it's not necessarily always about the profit, although the profit's good. But by doing the developments, you're still enhancing the local area and you're still mm. going to be able to add value significantly to the local area because yes. things are being developed. So now I've got that point into context. That's exactly... <laughs> Uh, that's exactly the thing. So, yeah, although I was saying profit's very important for the development side, and you've mm. explained it to me as in development arm um, and a providing arm, um, mm. that uh, yeah. ultimately, I guess, you know, even if there's a little bit less profit to take, the, the added value you're going to get from the enhancement of the area is, 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 yeah. is a great social benefit to everyone involved. 100%. And it, it, it's something... The sector can get its knickers in a twist on cross-subsidy. I'm, I'm one of those who think it might have been over-egged slightly in terms of its effectiveness, but there is definitely a place for it. I think at a time where, on average, you have around 11% of a development funded directly by government, that means 89% has got to be funded elsewhere. Now, you can you know, sweat your assets. You can have quite a high gearing level. That's absolutely fine and in your gift to do. Um, but you can supplement that by building and selling. And that's what organisations are doing. I think the other thing that organisations are, are being a lot more cuter on is where they operate and having a much better disposals programme. So 
by hook or crook nature of merger of organisations, you can be quite desperately spread. Um, the further well, the further you're away from a dense identification of your stock, more expensive it is to run. Because if you've got one unit that is a 45 minute drive from your local repairs hub, you know mm-hmm. you've got to pay to get out there, do the repair, come back. So why keep it if you can do a stock swap with another organisation, or if it becomes void and you can sell it on the open market? We'll do that, take the capital receipts and reinvest in. Um, and I think more organizations have been cute on that. Going back to the example earlier of like four organizations operating in the same street, that may now be two because, but for some, it's like, well, we've got kind of cluster of units over in Kidderminster, but actually our main hub is in Warsaw, or you know, we have stuff in uh Tenbury, but actually, we well, our main hub is in Suffolk, so why keep it? Um, relatively simple thing to think about but many organizations didn't for years just because they didn't have the opportunity or the uh, the the value on those units to, to get rid and kind of rethink or even take the bold decision to say actually we're going to sell be at a net lower volume of units for a while but when the opportunity comes we can then reinvest in that that our, our locales that are more important to us our strategic hubs as we say so yeah, many multiple factors in, in play, but certainly there is a place for cross-subsidising using market sale. I just don't think it's always quite at the level that people thought it might deliver because markets fluctuate, costs increase. I mean, at the moment, we're seeing massive increase in labour, in materials, and just tools. You know, all, all of these costs are going up because we're at like 11 12% in, in inflation on, on the RPI side of things. So. You know, that has an impact, which never means less profit coming in, which means less money to kind of run around. But it does help, ultimately. So in summary, we are saying, when we go back to the question again, are housing associations developers or providers of social housing? Uh, it's probably fair to say that, again, we're singing from the same hymn sheet where we all say they do. A majority of them, not all of them, but a majority of them, will affect adopt a hybrid model and do both. Agreed. Two point. Yes. <laughs>